morning, everyone. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. It would seem that our culture is obsessed with safety. Some have referred to this as safetyism. You know, that sign that you see in front of so many stores now that the most important thing they want you to know about them, not is that they they have a superior product or service, but that your safety is our top priority. I went to the, the mall the other day, parked in the parking structure and saw a sign, I'm sure you've all seen it, warning, this area contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer or birth defects. You might die by parking here. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's everywhere. But, but those examples are really related to our physical safety. What I find interesting is at the exact same time that all of that's going on, there's, there's really little warnings related to biblical morality, where you might spend eternity. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The only warning as far as that's concerned is that you better not warn anyone about any of that. Individual autonomous freedom rules the day. No judgment here. Scripture is pretty much the opposite, though. Of course, God cares for our physical safety, but we don't find a whole lot of biblical warnings regarding that. But there are many warnings regarding our morality, our spiritual state, where, where, where we are going to be spending eternity. And so why does God fill his word with all of these warnings? Well, because he loves and cares for us. If someone is walking toward the, toward the abyss and your response is to say, I mean, if that's what he wants to do, I, you know, I don't want to make him feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm sure he has a reason for doing that. I, I love by just allowing people to do whatever they want to do. If that's your response, can you really say you're loving people? God certainly doesn't seem to think so, which is why he warns us. And Hebrews in particular has multiple warning passages. Our text this morning is very much one of these warnings. But as we get into this kind of stark warning, let's make sure that we keep in the back of our minds as we go through this that God is is offering this warning because he loves us way too much to allow us to just wander astray without warning us. And so we must heed this warning and remain in him and his everlasting love for eternity. So let's get into this challenging but wonderful text, Hebrews chapter 4. We're picking up at the very beginning of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord, Hebrews 4.1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, 
saying, though David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I mentioned that this is a, a warning passage, and verse 1 begins with this stark warning. Fear, it's a command actually, let us fear. Big, red, blinking lights, warning, you must fear. This is how this pas- passage kicks off. And so what are we supposed to fear? That we would fail to enter God's rest. And what does that mean? Well, that's what we need to spend some time making sure that we know exactly what it means, because that's really the key to this entire passage. Verse 3 again says, quoting Psalm 95, God speaking, they shall not enter my rest. That's repeated again, verse 5, and then rest is referenced in 6, 8, 9, 10, 11. So this is the theme. This is the warning. Make sure you enter God's rest. And let's remember that this warning is not a warning to unbelievers, but to believers, who might think they will enter God's rest, but will fail to reach it. So the author of Hebrews is warning, don't let that happen. Make sure you enter God's rest. That's the repeated warning. So like I said, we need to make sure that we really understand what this means so that we can heed this warning of God. And so to answer this question, we really need to go back to the previous chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with therefore, because it's referring back to chapter 3, really verse 7, which is where he starts this thought, which he then concludes in chapter 4. So we need to kind of keep all that together, piece all this together. Verse 4, 2 says, the good news came to us just as to them, and the them is referring back to chapter 3. Verses 7 through 11, he quotes Psalm 95, then he offers kind of this warning commentary from it. And so in that section, the them he's referring to is the Israelite generation that God miraculously rescued from slavery in Egypt as God led them to the promised land, their earthly rest that was promised centuries earlier to Abraham. At least that's what would have happened, but it didn't, at least for that generation, because of what Psalm 95 says. First, the Israelites constantly complained and grumbled that God was doing it wrong as they wandered in the wilderness, despite, as 3.9 says, they, they continuously saw his miraculous care. But the death knell was when they, they finally got to the edge of the promised land, Canaan. You can read about this in Numbers 13 and 14 if you want. Pastor Robert talked about this a little bit last week. God commanded them to send spies to to check out the land and its inhabitants. This was the promised land, but it was inhabited by various people groups that God was going to remove from the land over time as he gave them the land. But unfortunately, the spies came back and told the people that the cities were were strongholds. There was no way they were going to be able to succeed. There was no way this is going to happen. Caleb and Joshua, they they were part of this spy detail too. And they attempted to counter that and encourage the people to to have faith. God led us here. He's going to give this promised land to us. 
but they were drowned out by the people who grumbled, saying it would have been better to have died in Egypt than to come all this way just to die in the promised land. And they attempted a coup to get rid of Moses and Aaron and find new leaders who would then lead them back to Egypt, if you can believe that, to which Joshua and Caleb again encouraged, no, guys, have, have faith in God. This time, though, the people wanted none of that, and they actually picked up stones to murder them. And at that point, God shows up, he renders his judgment, he says, after saving you from from bondage, after continuously, miraculously caring for you, only for you to rebel in this profound way, this entire generation, except Caleb and Joshua, who, who did remain in trust of him, would die in the wilderness. They would not enter the promised land that they were, they were right on the edge of. God wouldn't allow it, as Hebrews 4.3 says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They would not have the rest of the promised land. So that's kind of the, the Old Testament history lesson that this is referring to, which might make you think, okay, so you're saying, I guess, rest. We're trying to define rest. So rest means God's people physically living in Israel? The promised land? I mean, that seems weird. This is why I don't get the Old Testament. I mean, that made sense maybe to those people a couple thousand years ago, but how in the world does this apply to us today? Well, if you're thinking that, hold on. We're not done. Verse 8 says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so this is referring to the generation that followed that rebellious generation that died in the wilderness, the next generation was actually led into the promised land by Joshua, Moses' successor. But verse 8, referring to that, says that that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's rest. That, that earthly rest was a shadow, a type of the true fulfillment of the rest of God. As verse 1 says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. It wasn't fulfilled by that generation. So... What's the true rest of God then? Well, the answer is found in the gospel, as verse 4-2 says, and specifically the future aspect of the gospel. So it's important to know the gospel has past, present, and future aspects. Typically, when we think of the gospel, we're, we're considering the past aspect, our, our justification, whereupon our genuinely repenting of our sin and believing in Christ as Lord and Savior, we're declared not guilty of our sin. Christ paid for them on the cross. We're saved. That's glorious. We forever rejoice in that. But the gospel isn't limited to that. It extends into the present. And the present aspect of the gospel is the life that we live ongoing, moment by moment, in the power of grace. This passage has much to say on that. We'll get to that in a bit. But it extends further into the future aspect of the gospel, which is specifically what the rest of this passage is referring to, as verses 4 and 9 clearly indicate. By the way, if you're the kind of person who can't always remember, you know, exact chapter and verse, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then you quote it verbatim, but instead you usually say something like, as it says in Ephesians somewhere... Well, then the writer of Hebrews is your guy. He says, verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken, I can't remember the exact reference. What he's referring to, of course, is Genesis 2-2, where God rested on the seventh day after completing creation on day 6. And verse 9 concludes the thought by again referring to the Sabbath rest for the people of God, Sabbath being the last day of the week, a day of rest, 
pattern after God's resting the seventh day of the creation week. But again here, Sabbath is another type. It's not the ultimate fulfillment. And by the way, just to make sure, second time I've used the word type, just to make sure we understand what I'm referring to, it's, you know, it's sort of like, like an action figure. If you have a Darth Vader action figure, you know, it, it looks like Vader, but it's small, it's not animated, it's not the real thing, but it, it kind of points to the real thing, the real scary Vader on the screen. That's what these types are, are referring to. The promised land in Canaan, the Sabbath day, these are, these are real things, but they're not the ultimate rest. Rather, they're pointing to the ultimate rest, a future reality that those who are truly saved, as verse 10 says, will enter and rest from their works just as God rested from his on day seven. The point being, God didn't rest because he was tired. It denoted the completion of his work. So then we finally have the answer to what rest in this passage is referring to. It's the final rest of every true believer in eternity in the presence of our Lord after we've rested from the works done in this life. Remember, Ephesians 2.10, after it says we're saved by grace through faith, says that we've been saved. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a significant part of what it means to live life as a disciple of Christ is to complete the works that he has assigned to us. Which then says, okay, so what, what are those works? And, and we're going to get into that, one specific work that this passage refers to. But before we, we get there, I just want to make sure we don't pass. We kind of did all this hard work of defining what rest means so we can make sure we, we heed this warning and understand this passage. And so the warning here, it's a little bit clearer to us now. It's, hey, you, claiming to be in Christ, make sure you actually are in him and enter his rest Don't be like that generation in the wilderness who thought they were his people, but didn't enter his rest. So this is is a stark warning. And of course, it should make us say, okay, I just want to make sure I do not miss that rest. How do I make sure I remain in his rest? And the answer to that really sets the stage for the remainder of the text. And the answer is to believe. As verse 2 says, The wilderness generation did not enter God's rest because the good news they heard was not united by faith. But verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. So again, the writer's warning us, you who've heard the good news, just like that generation, that good news is not effective unto salvation unless it's united by faith. So to enter his rest, the good news of the gospel must be united with faith. And the word translated faith in verse 2, it's the same Greek word that's translated believe in verse 3. To believe is to have faith, same word. So here's a key truth to living the Christian life. Faith in scripture means trust. To be saved is to trust Christ as Savior, to continually trust him as Lord of your life. That wilderness generation did not trust that God would give them the land that he had promised. They failed to believe, to trust him. This is one of the most practical aspects of the Christian life. We have to continually walk in faith of God in our everyday lives. Trust God in all things. When it doesn't make sense what he's doing, 
when we think we can do it better, in the difficult, in the suffering, in the boring details, when we fill the pull of the world because we think it's gonna provide something God can't, we must trust God in all things. We must believe. And again, this text is not calling unbelievers to salvation. It's calling believers to moment-by-moment trust of God and warning if we have a pattern of unbelief, we may not enter the rest. Now, let me be clear here. Let me be very clear. This does not mean that we're saved by our works. So you'd better keep doing all these things to make sure you're saved. That's every other religion. That's not what this is saying. What this is challenging us on is if we don't have works as a result of our salvation, not to earn our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, then we may never have been saved in the first place. And making statements like that... (laughs) Oh, man, it's always so difficult because I, the last thing I want to do is shake a, a true believer's faith and make you kind of start to question and doubt your, your salvation when you shouldn't. Yet I, I have to make that statement because that, that's what God is warning through the writer of Hebrews here. As Ephesians 2.10 says again that I quoted a few minutes ago, we've been saved to good works, not by good works, it's not believing in Christ and then doing a bunch of good works that, keep, that gets and keeps us saved. It's, it's believing in Christ alone. But if we gen- genuinely believe, his works in us will result. And those works are certainly multifaceted. But there's one primary work that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing here that is connected to belief. I said belief was the focus of the remainder of our text We just said that the warning is that we must believe, we must continue to trust God so we don't fail to enter his rest. So the obvious question is, okay, so how do we remain in, believe, trust God? And the answer he gives us in this passage is obedience to God and his word. And we find that in verse 11, which connects the unbelief resulting in not entering God's rest to disobedience to God's word. Verse 11, referring to the wilderness generation, says specifically they didn't enter God's rest because of disobedience. Same thing said in chapter 3, 18 and 19. The proof of their unbelief was their disobedience. So verse 11 is an imperative to strive to enter that rest, strive to obey God and his word, to fulfill our works, which indicates another essential practical truth of the Christian life, and that is it's, it's one of zealous endurance, As it says in Titus 2.14, we are a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. But again, the the verses preceding verse 14, that verse referred to one of the primary works being obedience to God and his word by fleeing sin and living righteously. Listen to these verses beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, we might say our rest, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we are to resist sin and fight for godliness through his power. That's what Hebrews 3.8 refers to. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And you don't harden your hearts by, as it says in verse 13, we exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin. Okay, so this is now the entire flow of the passage. This is what the warning is pointing to. God is saying through the writer of Hebrews, enter my rest by believing. What is belief lived out? Obeying God's word. How do we do that? By not allowing your heart to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what verse 11 is summarizing. So here's a gigantic challenge from this warning passage. Are we taking sin as seriously as God is? And I don't mean the sin out there. There's plenty of sin out there to worry about. I mean the sin in here, our sin. Are we taking that as seriously as God takes it? Do we flee from it? Do we resist it? Do we fight against it? Remember, this is written to believers. Unbelievers might excuse their sin or even eliminate the concept of sin altogether, but believers, we can't do that. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Those two things are completely combined. Yet I fear sometimes we might be doing that, albeit I think completely unintentionally, even in the language that we use. The language we use sometimes might be communicating that we're not taking sin quite as seriously as we should. An example that I, 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 I've heard in recent years become very common is in, in place of the word sin, often we will say broken. Now, please, please hear me. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. If you use that word, I'm not trying to call you out. I'm not the word police. And if I hear you say, no, my presence, I'm going to haul you before the elders. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't get defensive, but please just think with me here. And let's make sure that we're really conveying what scripture conveys in these cases. I bring this up because words matter. And I don't, I hope we're not unintentionally minimizing sin when maybe we're not trying to. And again, I think broken fits this bill. You know, we're broken people living in a broken world. This has become very common language. But I think it's misleading because if you think about it, typically things that are broken broke on accident. Ah, you know, darn it, I knocked that glass off and broke it. That's, that's a bummer. If it was on purpose, we destroyed it. If it's on accident, we, we broke it unintentionally. That's definitely not how sin is described in Scripture. Like I said, words matter, and it's vitally important when it comes to something as serious as sin that we use biblical words to convey biblical meaning. And I'm not aware of anywhere where it's in Scripture where it says that we are broken. It does say some pretty harsh things like it says we're harlots, we're children of wrath, we're sons of disobedience who obey the God of this world, Satan, rather than the one true God. That's some pretty real language. And it conveys something entirely different than being broken. We chose to rebel against God. We regularly put our fist up at God and his word and say, we don't have to listen to you. Who are you? We're God. We can do what we want. That's what sin is. It's not brokenness. I think we should be careful with our language. The second linguistic trend I've noticed that might, we might be unintentionally taking sin less, less seriously than God does is the word authenticity. One of the highest values in our society is authenticity, be your authentic self, 
And it seems that's maybe seeped into the church a little bit. I was at a church once, good church, uh, but during the greeting, the pastor said, welcome, we're all broken here. You know, back, back to that word again. And again, I'm not picking on him. It was, it was a good church. And I get what he was saying. You know, we're all sinners. You don't have to be perfect to be here. And in a sense, that's certainly good to convey. But I'm afraid if it's not rounded out, it might be celebrating authenticity in, in somewhat of an unbiblical way. And here's what I mean. A few years back, I, I discipled someone pretty immature in his faith, although he claimed to be a Christian for years. He was struggling with serious sin patterns. He'd been called to the carpet by his pastor. He was actually in danger of losing his family because of it, and, and so I didn't attend his church, but I was kind of asked to, to disciple him, and I, of course, I was more than happy to do that. And so in addition to that, he also joined a, a men's group at his church. You know, he's just kind of trying to do anything, anything he could to kind of get right and save his family and all, all of that. And so we we were multiple weeks in, and, and I'd asked him how it was going in, in the men's group, and he said, I don't know, it's, it's not really very good, and I was kind of surprised, and, and I asked him why, and, and he said, I don't know, we just kind of all sit around, and everybody just kind of talks about their, their struggles with sin, and again, I think kind of the idea, you know, we're, we're, we're real men here, we're authentic, you know, kind of see all our struggles, and, and confess, confessing sin's biblical, obviously, that, that's not the problem. I'm referring more to kind of confessing our sin in, in authenticity, but maybe not doing very much to actually move beyond that sin. And here's why this is so significant. My, my you know, in biblically immature friend said, I, I think one of, the, one of the most biblically mature things that I've ever heard, he, he told me he didn't think he was going to continue in that group, and, and he said, this is the reason why. I don't need to hear a bunch of guys who are struggling with their sin too. I need to hear and see examples of how I can overcome my sin. In other words, he didn't want authenticity. He wanted holiness. That's what he needed. Like it says, again, in Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. Christ didn't suffer and die on the cross so that we could authentically remain in our sin. He gave himself to purify us to holiness in him, to put to death our sin, and to live in righteousness. That's what he's called us for and to. So let's make sure we're, we're not taking sin lightly, even, even in our language. That is, verse 11 tells us we're striving for godliness by obeying his word. As we continue on to verses 12 through 13, we, we find the greatest means to remain in belief and enter God's rest is the word. It may sound redundant, but one of the main means God uses to empower us to obey his word is his word. And we'll get into that, how that works in a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I first want to draw our attention to the fact that I would argue all of us are believing and obeying a word. It's just a matter of which one. We're either believing and obeying God's word or the world's. And, and what I mean when I, I say we're believing and obeying the world's word, that, that means buying into the script that is constantly inundating us. And it's no longer a whisper, it's an inescapable clarion call which comes in many forms, many scripts, but it's seeking to convince us to believe its claims about reality and it usually sounds something like, be true to yourself, live your truth, you define who you are, 
Or as one well-known comedian once said, there are no rules, follow your heart. I, I heard a pop singer who was performing at the Rose Parade last month. She was interviewed b- before the, the parade and, and she was asked, you know, what, what she wanted to say to her fans. And I mean, this is it. This, this is a huge stage. This is her opportunity to pass on a significant message to people. And her answer, word for word, I wrote it down. I want to encourage everyone to be authentic and to be yourself. That's why I said it's a script. Here's the script. It must be recited at all times. Everyone must say the same thing all the time. All of those scripts constantly repeated share the same foundation, and that is autonomous feeling. That's what's at the root of the world's word. Your autonomous feelings are reality. This is slightly different from past iterations. The, autom- the autonomous emphasis is the same. There's, there's no outside force governing you. It's just you. But the feeling, that, that's a, a relative newcomer to the scene in the West. Previous to that, I would argue, was an autonomous reason that ruled the day. Back in the 1600s, Descartes, who I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, at least from his famous declaration, I think, therefore I am. I had a theology professor that said, unfortunately, he put Descartes before Horse. It's actually, I, I am, therefore I think. Pretty good line. Anyway, Descartes said that human reason alone could teach us everything we need to know about God. No need for the Bible. You can know everything you need to know through your autonomous reason. And that led to about 150 years or so later, the radicals who spawned the French Revolution taking the next step and creating the cult of reasons. I don't know how many of you have studied the French Revolution. You, you should if you haven't. But they actually built, I don't know if you know this, they built a temple of reason meant to replace Christianity. They wiped out the church, and this is the new religion. Autonomous reading, reason. There's no other God than reason. And the result of that step is the bloody reign of terror. But nonetheless, that script reigned in much of the West until very recently when autonomous reason was replaced by autonomous feeling. In other words, the world's promise, the world's word, is that the answers to life's biggest question, questions can be found within you and your feelings. Thus, it's slogans. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Where is that truth found? Whatever you feel in yourself, that is your truth. That is reality. And although this is a new development in the West, to those of us familiar with Scripture, that should sound familiar. It was first heard by Eve as the snake hissed at her in the garden. You don't need to obey God's word. He's trying, trying to prevent you from being true to yourself. He just doesn't want you to be God. But you can be if you just take a bite of that delicious-looking fruit. You know, you want to. And when you do, you're not going to die. You're actually going to become like God. You get to define truth. You get to define reality. That's what's at the root of the first sin and all, all, all sin. Our desire to replace God with ourselves as God who get to define our own reality. It's our word. It's our autonomous feelings and desires that we obey, not God's. And although that's a tempting message that resonates deeply within all of us, we have to admit that. That's an attractive message to all of us. But if you and your feelings are where you get all of life's answers, that guarantees your answers are only ever going to be small and about you. They have to be. It's like a person who lives in the, the countryside of Ireland in all its magnificent beauty versus a person who's 
only ever lived in a small windowless room where the only colors are different shades of beige. You know, one, one person's world and perspective is glorious and expansive and big, and, and the other's is unvaried, limited, and small. Truth and reality being limited to what you can find in yourself and your feelings is actually pretty terrible because most people don't want small and insignificant. They want big and important. And the world knows this. So to make reality being limited by our autonomous feelings sound big, it seeks to convince us that having self-centered takes on everything is actually where real freedom is found. It's part of the script too. Whatever your heart tells you about God, yourself, this world, you can believe it. You can be whatever you want to be. Whatever identity makes you feel good, that's who you are. That's what you should do. No one can judge you. You're free from that. Freedom is found in you being you. This is the world's message that multitudes of people believe and obey. Because just like that viper in the garden, it sounds good, but it's deceptive. As Hebrews 3.13 warns against the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. What begins as a promise to make our own world, to define our own reality, to have freedom, descends into the dark recesses of ourselves and our feelings being the extent of our reality. And when that happens, ironically, we actually begin to lose touch with reality and even ourselves. And that's always going to be the result because God designed this world to function in a very specific way in order for us to have true human flourishing and freedom to experience true reality. And it centers not in us diving more into ourselves and our feelings, but in being in relationship with him and obeying his word that he's given to us for our good. But when we abandon that, When we abandon truth and reality, it only leads to devastation because reality can only be bent so far before it smacks us in the face and we realize that we're not actually God and we can't actually change reality. That's the world's promise of freedom, but it actually leads to the opposite. Chaos, devastation, and eventually death. Now, you might be thinking... Well, that was quite the social commentary, but you've said repeatedly that our text is a warning to believers, but it sounds like you just offered a warning to unbelievers. What does that have to do with the text? Well, I would argue it's, it's all part of the deceitfulness of sin. We live in this culture. We have this message continually blared at us all day, every day too, and some of us might be falling prey to it just because we claim Christ doesn't mean we're not. I, I personally know many who are, as a matter of fact. And if that's the case, oh man, I want to expose it and I want to, I want to call you back to the truth. But okay, I hear you. So let's say, I don't know, maybe a more Christian version of this might look like saying, we want a savior to rescue us from this. That's what we say. But really, we kind of mean we want a superhero because we too desire autonomy. Again, that's a very attractive message. And so we say the Bible is God's inerrant word, we believe it, but, but maybe sometimes we're kind of choosing which parts we're going to obey and, and which we're not. You know, we, we like to keep this pet sin, you know, like Golem and the Lord of the Rings, calling the ring his precious. This is our precious sin that we, we kind of attempt to maybe even keep God from because even though we might not say it in reality, We don't really want a savior who's going to be Lord of our lives. We want a superhero that can rescue us so that we can then go on doing whatever we want, at least in this part of our lives. That's the ugly reality of sin. 
the world, Satan's sin, it deceives us. And we love it because so often we want to do what we want to do. That's the nasty truth since the fall. We love sin. That's why we do it. Even though it leaves us dissatisfied and longing and distraught and even disgusted with ourselves, we keep doing it. This is our struggle as believers. We hate sin. If you don't hate sin, you know, it's hard to say you're, you're actually saved. But in a sense, we also love it. That's why we keep doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Has there ever been a verse we could all relate to so much? The writer of Hebrews has an answer in the warning. Don't fall for the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, look around. The mask is off. We're getting a front row seat at what results when we abandon God's word for the world's. When we live according to autonomous feelings. I find it fascinating that even many atheists today are seeing it. We've moved from the the so-called new atheists, and I guess it was like the early 2000s, Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens, you know, raging against God, blaming all the world's evils on religion. To many atheists now, Neil Ferguson, Douglas Murray, Jordan Peterson, understanding, whoa, 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 hold on. If we get rid of God, chaos just results. We need that foundation. They, They see it. They just don't have the answer. But God does. As the writer of Hebrews says, question the world's script. Stop buying into it. The only place sin and autonomous feelings-based freedom leads is enslavement, chaos, and death. Conversely, though, God's word leads to peace, life, and rest. And so since we all believe and obey a word, the clear imperative is to believe and obey God's word. And thankfully, God doesn't leave us to figure out how to do that on our own. The, the, the way to do that is part of the warning. So verse 11 tells us, strive to into that rest. And then verse 12 says, here's how you do it, the word. God uses the word to keep us in him, to aid us in battling sin, to see sin for what it is, to make us holy as he is holy, to complete the works that he's given us, to lead us to eternal rest in him. And some of the most poignant verses of the word are found in verses 12 and 13. It can almost seem like there's this extended warning passage, and then right after that, God just kind of randomly plops in these verses about his word. And we can sometimes treat them like that. We can kind of lift 12 and 13 out when we're doing a study on the word of God and all its characteristics. But these aren't randomly dropped in. This isn't a commentary on God's word just inserted here that has nothing to do with what preceded it. These verses are telling us this is how we enter God's rest and avoid falling in disobedience by obeying the world's word instead of his. And the way that we do that is the word. I said earlier, the primary way we obey his word is the word, which sounds circular, but as we look at these verses, hopefully that will make sense. The primary characteristic of the word of God highlighted in verses 12 and 13 is that the word of God is a weapon. But it's pointing in a different direction than we might normally think about it. And, and what I mean is the word of God being referred to as a weapon is pretty common for those of us familiar with scripture. That great passage, Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the, the armor of God and a part of that armor is we're to arm ourselves with the word of God, referenced as, uh, referred to as a sword. This is our weapon against the schemes of, of the devil and the sinful forces that he talks about in that chapter. So when we think of the, the sword, the word, uh, as a weapon, I'm guessing that's typically how most of us think about it. But in our passage, it's different. 
Again, verse 12, word of, the word of God is described again as a sword, and not just any sword. This is sharper than any sword, so much so that it can divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Truly, it is unlike any other sword that penetrates deep into us. But notice who this sword is wielded against. This time, it isn't a sword in our hands wielded against sin and Satan. It's described as essentially being in God's hands wielded against you. Me, all of us. The Bible certainly is our primary weapon against sin and Satan, but this is the work of the word too. It's a weapon in the hands of God. And the result is wonderful. Might be painful at times, might make us a little uncomfortable at times, but this is what God uses in his perfectly skilled hands that results in obedience, life, joy, peace, true freedom, rest. There's nothing like God's word. These verses make that abundantly clear. As verse 12 says, it is living and active. My, my wife and I were walking the dog not, not too long ago, and I had just finished reading a chapter you know, that I'd read, I don't, I don't know how many times, and I was just telling her, you know, I'd always kind of read it and understood it this way, and, and then this morning, just something entirely different just popped out of me, and I never, never saw it there, and it was exactly what I needed to hear, and it was wonderful. And you know, Chet, Chet was just talking about this the other day. It's like, did somebody... At this overnight, I've never seen this before here. It's, it's, it's what it feels like sometimes. Like, where did this come from? I've read this 900 times, and I've never seen this. And, and it's exactly what I needed. That, that's the work of God's word in our lives. That's what living and active is referring to. Other books have, have the capacity to inform or, or inspire us, but only God's word has the ability to actually affect change in our lives. God's word reworks us from the inside out. It's kind of crazy, but that's the unique work it does. And that that effectual, life-changing power works by God using the word to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as verse 12 says, which is expanded on verse 13, which says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's really a pretty chilling verse. This is referring to the account that all of us have to give God one day of our lives. And it's really kind of meant to make us feel uncomfortable. I mean, the thought of standing naked in front of a judge, the judge, is pretty terrifying. The point is we're totally exposed. You know, we're, we're pretty good at hiding things from everyone else, maybe even deceiving ourselves. But, man, nothing is hidden before God. It's all laid bare before him. And as this passage has been warning us, the last thing we want to happen on that judgment day is to not enter his rest, but to, to help make sure that that doesn't happen if we prioritize the work of the word in our lives now, God uses it to keep us in him. Like I said, there's, there's nothing like the work of the word. I could tell countless stories of that just personally in my life. But the obvious takeaway from that just as verse 2 says, the, the good news didn't profit the wilderness generation because it wasn't united with faith. The unbelievable work of the word is not going to profit you unless you avail yourself of it. Like that guy I mentioned at the beginning, walking toward the edge of the abyss and, and seeing a sign that says, warning, or you'll stop and pledge to your death. If he ignores it and keeps walking, that sign had no effect. In the same way, we aren't just automatically downloaded with the word when we're saved. 
We have to be in it. We have to constantly feed on it, spend time with God, allowing him to speak to us through his word. All of us want to hear from God, and this is how it happens. This is how he speaks to us, through his word. So read it, be in it constantly. It's a major part of how you remain in him and in his rest, his power through his word. And I'd say it's especially so today, where we just have the world's word constantly being pumped into us, so we really have to counteract that with the word of God needs to be a priority for all of us. Well, after all of these warnings and and admonitions, I mean, this is what the text is. I have to stay true to the text, but I do want to remind us, I want to end by reminding us the promise of rest that these warnings are pointing us to. Because the point isn't to leave here today, you know, feeling beat up, thinking there's all these things I I have to do to make sure I'm saved. The, the point of these warning passages, like I said at the beginning, is love. It's not to, to focus on the warnings as an end unto themselves. It's, it's to take your focus off of the deceitfulness of sin and the world's word and to put it onto Christ and the promised rest that we have in him. So it's not just that, that God is warning us, you know, don't, you know, stop, don't keep going, plunge to your death, end of story. He's saying if you keep heading that way, you're going to plunge to your death, but instead, turn around, follow me, and I will give you rest. I will give you life. I will fulfill your deepest longings. I will empower you to live in the difficulties of this world. I will give you true peace and freedom, and after this life, I will bring you to myself where you will live with me in my presence forever. There will be no sin. You won't even be able to sin. What's that going to be like? You will live in perfect peace. There will be no sorrow. There will be no suffering. You will enjoy each other, but most of all, you will enjoy me. No longer will you be living by faith because I will be right there, and you will experience perfect love, joy, and peace forever in me. This life is a mist, but that is forever. It is my rest that I give to you if you remain in me. That's what this passage is about. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for your your loving, compassionate warnings to us. I pray that every person here would, would heed that warning, would be so full of amazement at your gospel, you have saved us, that we are in you, that we would want nothing more than to spend our lives faithfully obeying you and proclaiming your truth to others. We thank you that you're our God, our King, our Shepherd, and we are your adopted children, and we give you joy and praise. Amen.